Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And today we're going to be talking about peptides. So Kyle, go ahead and ask me, what is a peptide? Yeah, what is a peptide? Apparently everything is a peptide because people are calling things like MK677 or ibutamorin a peptide. Mm -hmm. They're calling medications like insulin a peptide. They're calling weight loss pills like tesofensine a peptide. Hmm. So I know you have a explanation that you've given half a dozen times on yeah. podcasts about what a peptide actually is. So we'll put my sarcastic answer aside for a second and have you tell us what a peptide really is. Yeah. So at risk of being overly repetitive, a peptide is just a string of amino acids between two and a couple hundred amino acids. Um, interestingly, when it comes to peptides that are compounded, there's an arbitrary amino acid limit. I think it's either 40 or 50. But there's an arbitrary limit of like how what peptides can be compounded at certain pharmacies or not. But at the end of the day, a peptide is just a very small protein. There's peptides that have uh, no human evidence whatsoever. There's peptides that are prescribed often like insulin or semaglutide that are medications with um, lots and lots of clinical evidence and um, potentially useful in many people. So the question is, would we see more or less backlash against those sorts of medications if they were also called peptides? Yeah, kind of both. There's a dichotomy or there's a divergence in two extremes. One extreme, um, I suppose you could call it like the alternative medicine community, functional medicine providers, peptide clinics, obviously, HRT clinics, um, health optimization clinics. And these clinics usually overemphasize the use of all peptides. And they say, well, you need peptides. Or a patient will come to you and say, you know, give me as many peptides as possible. Um, but then on the other extreme, there's people that say, well, peptides have no clinical trials or no clinical evidence whatsoever. And it's frustrating because neither one of these groups understands what a peptide actually is. Peptides, again, are just small proteins. You have to approach it just like medications. Think like, take that same phrase and apply it to medications. Medications have no clinical evidence whatsoever. Medications are not useful. Nobody should be on medications. Or come, fill me with as many medications as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, really, it's ludicrous when you look at it that way. And that's the way that we see it. Okay. So let's say I'm a patient. We'll just do a, a case study here and... You know, I want to lose some weight and I want to do peptides to do it. Definitely not going to take semaglutide because I want to take peptides, peptides yeah. not medication. Mm -hmm. So let's say I want to do some tesofensine and I want to lose some weight. I'm going to read here about the peptide tesofensine. So on this website uh, by an internal medicine physician, he says, this peptide works as a natural appetite suppressant. Natural. That's right. It's on the doctor's website. Mm. It's an inhibitor of the reuptake of the brain's neurotransmitters serotonin, noradrenaline, and dopamine. 
enhancing their presence around sales, regulating energy balance and appetite. Available in capsule form, mm -hmm. this peptide will not cause the stimulatory effects one feels when taking standard appetite suppressant medications. So how does a standard appetite suppressant medication work? Um, usually through neurotransmitters like noradrenaline or dopamine. But that looks like the same way that tesofensine works. It, it does look like a stimulant, doesn't it? Interesting. Hmm. Also, is tesofensine really a peptide? That's a great question. I don't believe so. I, it, it sounds like a combination of something like Sinosi or Wellbutrin with an SSRI, doesn't it? It does. It is a triple reuptake inhibitor. So it certainly has effects on hormones. So perhaps that would be a better buzzword to use for marketing, that this is a hormone modulating weight loss agent hmm. as opposed to being a peptide. Hormone modulating Maybe too many big words. Agent. Yeah, it seems more apt. That's not a peptide. But this medication does seem to be promising. We were looking at some of the literature on this earlier today. And there was a trial that was done, I believe, down in Mexico, where mm -hmm. obese patients did lose about 10% of their body weight in 24 weeks, mm -hmm. which is pretty impressive. You know, when you look at the average diet, people can lose about 5% of their body weight fairly easily, regardless of what plan they choose. Yeah. But then the problem is going beyond that and then the maintenance. Uh, and that's where, in some cases, pharmacology comes in and that's what they're looking at is efficacy over time mm -hmm. and being better than just diet and exercise. So yeah. this has been around for probably 10, 15 years at this point in research. Mm -hmm. And actually this year, the company hopes to have it brought to market, uh, not in the US, Mm -hmm. but in Mexico, followed by some other South American countries, so as opposed to get a foothold and then maybe get approval in Europe and the States eventually. Yeah. yeah, this is very exciting medication. I think of it as a combination of Sinosi, which is basically bupropion, but it's more um, noradrenergic and less dopaminergic. So there's a bit more of a balance, whereas bupropion is more of a dopamine reuptake inhibitor, less on the norepinephrine component, and then adding in the serotonin reuptake component which makes a lot of sense. In the obesity medicine community, it's well known that various um, SSRIs or SNRIs, which all, it's serotonin and norepinephrine, can be more weight negative, especially compared to other um, serotonin reuptake only medications. So yeah. it, it'll decrease pill fatigue and capsule load, but um, it's not exactly like a novel peptide as many people would make it off to be. Yeah. So. If you look at something like fluoxetine and bupropion, mind the drug-drug interaction mm. there. Um, yeah. But those are two weight-neutral or weight-negative, in most cases, yep. antidepressant medications. One working on the serotonin, the other mm. on dopamine and norepinephrine would plausibly have similar efficacy if they had a similar trial. But no one is going to fund that because there's not a lot of money to be made from seeing if two cheap generic medications are going to lead to 10% weight loss in about half a year. Mm -hmm. Unless it's something like bupropion naltrexone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and not to rabbit trail off too much, we briefly mentioned uh, lifestyle interventions being the control group um, or placebo group, or both really. Um, on that note, we had an interesting discussion this morning about GLP-1s and their various effects on heart rate. Looking into the studies on GLP-1s, there's obviously a placebo group when you inject um, you know, not a GLP-1, and those get standard of care, lifestyle modification, which is diet and exercise, 
And you would think in those groups, especially in a population with metabolic syndrome, which is not exercising before, you would have a decrease in resting heart rate because you're more aerobically fit. And that was not something that they found. Yeah, this came about because we were looking at the GLP-1 effect of either semaglutide or trizepatide mm-hmm. on uh, SA node stimulation because diabetic patients have been on Ozempic or people on Wagovi now, they do note an increase in resting heart rate a few beats per minute. Yep. I don't think that's the mechanism by which people are losing weight, um, but it is there. Uh, maybe you burn a couple more calories a day, something yep. like that. But it was interesting to note that the placebo group is not having a change. So yeah, maybe these people are exercising, but their exercise selection is not such that they're actually improving their level of fitness. Yeah. Um, it was not a reassuring sign that the lifestyle intervention was working within uh, both groups. Um, so yeah, I guess moving on to the next peptide, um, we'd like talking about uh, HGH. People often ask us like, you know, do I need a growth hormone peptide or do I need to go on Omnitrope or whatnot? And there's one called AOD9604 with interesting evidence. So I'm a patient again here and I'm disappointed because tesofensine isn't really a peptide. So I'm going to move on to the next weight loss peptide on my list. Mm-hmm. And I want some AOD9604. And in addition to weight loss and fat burning and being basically growth hormone without any of the downsides, take a look at my research that I did. And I found out it also helps patients with osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, elevated cholesterol, worn cartilage depression, diabetes, and bone damage. Wow. It's amazing. We should put that in the water. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like it. Wait, but if it lowers cholesterol, I don't know if I want it. True. (laughs) It would be a lipid medication. You only want things to increase cholesterol, like testosterone. Exactly. No, but all kidding aside, um, this medication was being developed for obesity Mm -hmm. uh, because it didn't seem to induce the same insulin resistance that you ran into with growth hormone. And it just wasn't particularly impressive or it wasn't impressive enough in the clinical trials. Uh, Had good safety data. The most impressive trial result was a 12-week trial and patients were taking this as an oral capsule, uh, which Usually this is thought of as being injectable, but oral capsule formulations were available at this time. About a milligram per day, and they lost 2.6 kilograms versus a placebo group, which lost 0.8 kilograms. So three to four pounds of extra weight loss over 12 weeks. Um, I mean, that's not insubstantial, but when they ran the longer trials, they didn't see the continued effects where they were getting the endpoints that they had set, which is probably mm-hmm. something like weight loss of 10% body weight or something of that nature. By the way, this compound is also known as GH frag. They literally just took um, GH and chopped the amino acid sequence or the peptide part of HGH that they thought was going to lead to less insulin resistance and more of the uh, lipolysis and weight loss benefit. There is one group of patients that in particularly in particular will benefit from this, and that is if you were a New Zealand rabbit. That's right. If you combine this peptide with hyaluronic acid and you do a series of intraarticular injections mm-hmm. after you put collagenase in the intraarticular space, mm-hmm. then you will have improved collagen regeneration if you are a New Zealand white rabbit. Correct. So if there are any white rabbits out there listening, this peptide may be for you. Yes. Uh, Or I I suppose perhaps if one of your pets is a New Zealand white rabbit and also has had collagenase injected into their tendon 
it could be very applicable. But in all seriousness, the, the most common formulation of this peptide that we do prescribe is in topical form. So at very low doses, often it's combined with other things like GHK copper peptide, which we'll speak about later, especially in um, older patient populations. And we do think it's uh, reasonable in a lot of cases as a topical cream. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way to reduce the risk. And there's a number of peptides that are used in topical yeah. versions, things that are even over the counter in topical preparations now. Mm -hmm. um, so perhaps we'll have a cosmetic peptide episode at some yep. time for part two. One quick note on cosmetic peptides, because it's too funny not to say, I love how it seems like every skincare company or every aesthetics company has a, a peptide cream or a peptide serum. It They never say which peptide is in it. So that's that's just particularly frustrating as fans of mechanism of action and pharmacodynamics. And now one that we hear probably the most about. So BPC-157. And since I hear about this the most, I would assume that means it has the most clinical data behind it. Is that the case? If by clinical data you mean preclinical data, preclinical data, by the way, is usually rodent models, then yes, it has immense le levels of preclinical data and essentially no real clinical studies. Well, there are some maybe real clinical studies. Kind of, yeah. So there was a... I guess it was a practice in Florida, I think we decided, yeah. where they were treating patients with BPC-157 doing intraarticular injections. And then they called these patients back at six months and at one year after the injections, asked them how their knees felt before, mm -hmm. asked them how long they lasted, how they felt afterwards. And 75% of those patients reported improvement. 25% of those patients reported no change. So this is actually not a terrible piece of data, but the way that people interpret it is pretty terrible. So yeah. it doesn't mean that it's effective and improves cartilage in 75% of people, mm -hmm. but it means that in this one cohort that had this procedure done and no sham procedures, so they didn't do any you know, placebo or saline injections, yep. that those people did seem to experience on average benefits from the treatment. And you know, there weren't untoward effects or adverse effects that were reported. So there's a little bit of data there. There was another study, and this was done at a hospital in Mexico, where they were just looking at pharmacokinetics. So again, in capsule form, this is something that people will get confused about a lot because yep. BPC is unique, I guess, sort of to the peptide family that it's stable in uh, at a gastric pH, uh, whereas a lot of other peptides will get denatured. But they were just looking at different capsules and doses and seeing what blood levels they got. And they were giving people up to six milligrams a day, which is a pretty hefty pretty dose. High. Usually it's just half of a milligram. Yeah, for about two weeks. And apparently the you know, site that conducted the study submitted the results to clinicaltrials.gov, but the results were never published. Why is that? Let us know in the comments. There's a lot of studies like this. Yeah, so maybe we take a sidebar here and try to figure out why the results weren't published. Why would, why would an author not publish their results, Kyle? There's a lot of reasons. I do not know why this happens so often on clinicaltrials.gov. It could be um, embarrassment. There could be a flaw in the methodology that is exposed. And um, if that was the case, then I wouldn't want the results to be published. Um, ethically, 
I really still should publish those results so that people can learn from that. The flaw in the methodology might be something that other people will encounter. That's how you learn um, through publishing results and through the peer review process if you're hopefully publishing a peer review journal. It could also be there's not enough employees or funding from the government for clinicaltrials.gov to actually upload those results and publish them, which have been sent to them. What uh, if I just don't like the results that I got? That, that is a potential reason. <laughs> um, I suppose another reason we could ask in the form of a question is um, they are hiding something from us that they do not want to know because of the pharmaceutical lobby. Oh, yeah. that's a head scratcher. Yep. I but do not know. I, I do get particularly excited when I see results that are published that are negative results. Yes. So we talked about this, I believe, with the L-carnitine study where the authors thought, hey, this might be protective in metabolic syndrome because it does X, Y, and Z. And then they actually saw that it was speeding up the stenosis of arteries. They're like, oh, yep. this is not what we expected, but they published the study anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think that is an example of good science. So yep. Not a perfect study. It's not conclusive. We want to see things reproduced and replicated. Mm -hmm. But I do really appreciate it when people publish not just positive results, but negative results. Yep. Another good example is that study on rapamune and ketamine. And they thought that it would blunt the response of ketamine, but it actually augmented and prolonged the response. Um, the antidepressant response, by the way. Um, so that was another good example of publishing results that were contrary to the hypothesis. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right. So moving on down our peptide list, if we go to CJC1295, um, this has to work well because it doesn't even have an actual name. Mm -hmm. It's just a combination of letters and numbers. So I assume this is a very powerful peptide. Yeah, um, it must be. Uh, research peptides are some of the favorite ones because everybody's always looking for the next best thing that is going to be the single magic bullet that's going to fix all the issues. Um, and in reality, um, you know, there are some peptides and also just uh, non-peptides that we're excited about that are still in the research and development phase. But this is no exception. Um, it, it actually has gone through clinical trials and they were stopped for relatively, con actually very concerning reasons. Yeah, so if you look at some of just the initial dosing that was done in you know, healthy adult males, adult females, um, you did see pretty substantial doses, so 30 to 60 micrograms per kilogram. This is, say you're a 100 kilogram male, just for simple math, that's you know, 3,000 to 6,000 micrograms. So mm -hmm. that's probably your whole peptide vial. Um, and even up to 90 micrograms per kilogram. And it did increase growth hormone and IGF-1 substantially, but you wouldn't necessarily want growth hormone and IGF-1 to be sky high all the time. Yep. So this is a lot of times touted as, you know, someone told us the other day in a conversation, the best peptide for anti-aging. And we smiled politely, but in any case, I don't know that you want those to be elevated because there are risks that come along with that. Yep. 
And it's not uncommon that I see a patient who comes to our practice to kind of get their routine or regimen sorted out. And they'll say, well, um, I've been taking CGC, I've been taking BPC, I've been taking Epitalon, I've been taking this. And you know, my question is, you know, how long have you been taking those things? And uh, with the BPC, I think the I think the record I've seen is between two and three years that someone had been on that continuously. Yeah, is that about what you've seen, or have you seen someone who's been on that longer? I haven't seen longer than a couple of years, but I've certainly seen a lot of patients who plan to remain on it indefinitely, especially uh, patients with a lot of chronic musculoskeletal uh, injuries and also inflammatory bowel disease. Yeah, so I would I counsel those patients that we definitely want to use the minimum effective dose. We don't want to be taking something that's going to elevate carcinogenic, like it's not going to elevate risk factors for cancer growth like angiogenesis or growth factors, growth hormone, IGF-1, tend to be overexpressed on atypical yeah. cells and cancerous cells. So it doesn't look good on paper. And it's kind of paradoxical because there's a lot of people who are very young who probably don't need to be taking these things. They probably have plenty of growth hormone and IGF-1 around. But at the same time, when someone is younger, that's when the relative risk is going to be the lowest when you don't need the medication. Whereas someone who is, let's say, 60 or 70 years old, perhaps they have developed adult onset growth hormone deficiency. Yeah. They stand to benefit more from the medication. But at the same time, the risk is higher. And sometimes there are other ways that are much better to improve quality of life versus throwing a peptide at something. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. The risks and the benefits often raise at similar levels and then just making sure the patient understands their individual risk and their individual benefit is important. Yeah. But anyway, and to the, the juicy part of this story, uh, apparently during a phase two trial for visceral adiposity in HIV patients, the CJC trial was terminated before it completed because after the 11th injection, one of the patients had a myocardial infarction and died. And they suspected that it was unrelated, but that the patient had asymptomatic coronary artery disease. Uh, good reason to get your cardiac risk factors checked, yep. get some imaging done if appropriate. Um, but in any case, I think this is really interesting because some of the earlier preclinical data on peptides, like I think GHRP6 in yep. particular, look like it would be very protective in these sorts of vascular events. Like they would ligate the coronaries or ligate something in a, a mouse model give them this peptide and look at that, there's no damage from this period of ischemia. But this is a perfect sort of human case report of this same scenario where there's a period of ischemia and it did not have that same protective effect. This person in fact passed away. Yeah, there's a couple interesting things that you can take into account in a situation like this. Um, I suppose one of them is you can see, uh, you know, in hindsight, we're not able to see they didn't like uh, publish a lot of specifics on this case report, but they did mention that it was about two hours, I believe. Yeah, two hours after after, after the injection, and about one hour after the MI, the myocardial infarction began, passed away after uh, one hour. So uh, passed away three hours within injecting, and then the MI, at least the pain, which is the you know it can it can start before that, but the the pain from the ischemia began two hours after. But this patient had been on the CJC in the trial for quite a while longer before that. Perhaps it was incidental. 
but uh, certainly long enough to presumably raise IGF-1. So you're thinking about the effects of IGF-1 on estrogen and potentially um, the effects on like a platelet and the clotting cascade as well. And glucose being elevated perhaps. Yep, glucose and insulin as well. So there's a lot of factors that could be at play, um, but it is, uh, that's pretty much the, at least that we know of the last clinical trial. Uh, was that phase one or phase two? I think it was phase two at this point. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, compared to a lot of other things that can um, lead to very similar goal, which is uh, presumably um, improving either lipodystrophy or improving a, a growth hormone deficient or borderline growth hormone deficient patient, um, there seems to be better options. Agreed. Uh, now, I've just given up on weight loss peptides as the patient Googling things and doing my research. So let's look at something that people ask me and you about all the time, cognitive enhancement. And no, I don't want to work on my sleep. I don't want to eat fruits and vegetables. I don't want to put my phone away. Just give me a pill I can take that improves my cognition. So I do some research on dihexa. Hmm. And dihexa, I thought this was comical. We'll put up a, a screenshot yeah. here. But it's a angiotensin 4 analog. And the way this is presented makes it look like a positive thing. But I'll let you decide whether this is a positive thing or not. It says angiotensin 4 has also been shown to stimulate the release of aldosterone hormone Ooh. from the adrenal gland and to help support the kidney's sodium retention. Yeah, so it sounds like it's the opposite of spironolactone. So that must be good. Yeah, and I know that spironolactone blocks androgens, so mm -hmm. more aldosterone must mean more androgen. Yeah, it must be androgenic. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not the no. case. Um, spironolactone just happens to also bind the androgen receptor and progesterone receptor. Progesterone is actually quite similar to aldosterone. Aldosterone can be synthesized um, from progesterone. But uh, if you think about something like an aldosterone receptor antagonist, like aldactone, um, then that's going to be uh, helpful in some cases of controlling blood pressure and controlling um, sodium and potassium. So this would be the opposite, which could lead to hypertension. Yeah, and I think what's particular egregious here is their, I guess, claims about the clinical improvements that can be expected from a, mm -hmm. a patient like myself, just trying to find out about the benefits of dihexa. Yeah. So it says patients who suffer from neurological disorders, such as Alzheimer's, will feel the effects of this peptide kick in when they begin to notice improvement in their thinking abilities. Uh, says useful in treating long-term, short-term memory, heart health, regulation of insulin, restoration of synapses between neurons, improvement of memory, et cetera, et cetera. So surely they must have a lot of clinical data and a lot of human data to back up these claims. That is surely not the case. I, I wish that websites like this would preface all of these claims with saying, these are things that we've seen in rodent models or even not in rodent models, in a Petri dish where they have um, like, uh, you know, cells that happen mm -hmm. to come from a brain, maybe from a human, maybe from a mouse. And then they look at uh, various effects, but yeah. Um, yeah. And when they use the term patients, not that research has shown, that makes it really seem like they're extrapolating it to humans. Yeah. So as far as dihexa goes, there are sort of derivatives of dihexa that are, you know, in preclinical research, they're still trying to 
get into a like neuroprotective pipeline, but there's not been anything that's conclusive there. Um, the one study that got a lot of headlines, this has been about a decade ago at this point, was dihexa when it was given to uh, mice or used in uh, in vitro on mice neurons. Uh, was much more neurotrophic than BDNF. And people know of all these benefits from BDNF. You get it from exercise. You know, SSRIs increase BDNF, mm -hmm. helps with depression, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Helps the neurons grow together. And it was found that the dihexa was more neurotrophic. But it didn't really go beyond that. I mean, so far it's helped like confused dementia rats get through mazes, but uh, it really hasn't progressed beyond that. You know, whether that's because there's a safety signal um, that's been seen there, they just don't think it's that promising. For whatever reason, it hasn't it hasn't uh, progressed beyond that point, mm -hmm. and it's not something that I would recommend anyone take. Yep, agreed. Rats that have POTS would be the next group that I'd like to see dihexa studies in. And POTS is a postural orthostatic uh, tachycardia syndrome. So your heart rate and your blood pressure change as you sit up and stand down, sit and sit down. So what about longevity? So I'm not gonna get any smarter just from taking a peptide. I'm mm -hmm. not gonna get any smarter just from taking a pill. Um, but what about longevity? Cause I hear about anti-aging and longevity and peptides and epitalon gets thrown around all the time about a longevity you know, mm -hmm. peptide and, and resetting your age and lengthening telomeres and all these sorts of things. So surely there's a lot of data here, or, or maybe it makes mice live longer. Yeah. First of all, with the term anti-aging, um, as always, it's important to break that down. So you're looking at, is this cosmetic anti-aging um, or is this performance like athletic performance or cognitive performance anti-aging? or if this is cellular anti-aging. And of cellular, is it mitochondrial anti-aging? Is it preserving the length of the telomeres, as you mentioned, the ends of the DNA that tend to shorten as cells turn over? Hyperbaric oxygen is one of the things that actually has great clinical evidence to um, uh, like postpone the um, shortening of the telomeres. And uh, actually, if you just have a ton of growth hormone, like if you're on HGH, then that's going to turn over your cells faster and potentially lead to shortening of telomeres. Or is it protein folding? So a lot of that has to do with inflammation. If there's like a lot of iron deposits called hemosiderin in the cell. See, I guess that's five different categories of anti-aging. Maybe that's a podcast in and of itself. Um, usually um, when you hear about scientists talk about anti-aging or even these anti-aging clinics, they are concentrating on just one of those five areas. And usually if you were going to push um, the a benefit in one of the areas, it's deleterious to another area. So specifically with this peptide, um, it is, uh, I believe just in rodent models, it is supposed to increase the length of the telomeres, but it doesn't even have great data in the rodent models. Yeah, in the mice study, we didn't actually see the mice live longer and we didn't see a decrease in tumor incidence in the mice, which is you know, primarily what you would look for in extending a mouse model lifespan because they're very susceptible to different cancers. Uh, I believe cancer mortality is number two right behind euthanasia for mice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for telomeres, I would look at four main things instead of this. Uh, I would look at potentially hyperbaric oxygen protocols if you're able to utilize a protocol, even uh, at a minimally efficacious dosing protocol. And then uh, I would look at good REM sleep. I would look at zone two cardio. 
And then I would look at avoiding excess cell turnover and growth signaling. Well, that just seems like the basics, plus or minus a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Yeah, it's pretty much just, it, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Another one, um, maybe I could be the patient this time, but uh, let's briefly touch on GHK copper peptide since we mentioned it earlier. Uh, I come in and I say, you know, I'm, I'm 70 years old. I know that I'm not producing as much GHK copper peptide. Um, what ways can I utilize this? Yeah, so you actually sound like uh, a patient who's looking at something reasonable. You know, GHK copper isn't a particularly sexy peptide. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually the one that we referenced earlier being over-the-counter in a number of different products. So yes. if you see one and, and it's, it says peptide and it's priced quite high, then that's likely to have GHK copper in it. But of course, check the ingredients label. It's kind of sexy because it's blue. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. It is actually blue when this peptide is reconstituted. Mm -hmm. um, and this one actually, out of everything that we've talked about today, probably has the most clinical data, particularly in a topical form. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's actually superior to like a vitamin and mineral mixture that's applied to the skin. Yeah. One of the studies we reviewed at about a 50% reduction in wrinkle appearance with the traditional vitamin mineral blend versus 70% with a GHK copper solution. So it improves collagen turnover, wrinkle reduction, these sorts of things. At a systemic level, it's kind of hard to plot where the GHK levels are over time. There's basically two data points in some of these studies and there's no um, methods as to where they got these from. But they said your level is about 200 when you're 20 and about 80 when you are you know, 60 years old, I believe was the number there. Yeah. So where they got that from, it, I'm not we sure. We don't know. Hopefully it's legitimate and wasn't just made up. Um, I don't mm. believe that this is something that we could assay. Um, it would be nice if we could just like somebody's testosterone levels and say, well, let's just check your GHK levels because, you know, maybe yours haven't declined because mm -hmm. it's kind of... Ludicrous to yep. expect everyone to have a similar pattern of decline. But that aside, maybe it has to do with liver health. By the way, I have two, I'm heterozygous for two HFE SNPs. <laughs> so I have an iron overload predisposition. Yeah. Iron overload would make someone a better candidate for increasing systemic levels of GHK copper. So this is something that actually is endogenous. It's not like um, AOD 9608, where it's just a you know, sort of a snip of an endogenous peptide or an analog of a peptide. This is the actual you know, thing. Bioidentical peptide therapy. <laughs> Bioidentical. <laughs> it is circulating in your bloodstream. So there is some data, and this is, again, like in vitro data, mm. preclinical models, but it looks like it may have some stabilizing effect on the ferritin protein as yep. far as not releasing that iron into tissues and causing oxidative stress. Um, we know that it definitely does improve, you know, wound healing. You know, this is something that has been studied. Um, this is something like pressure sores, or burn victims this is typically being done in patient in hospital centers and wound centers. So mm -hmm. just like hyperbaric oxygen, this one has more data behind it. Um, but as far as the risks here, I, if someone is taking too much of it, you could push yourself into copper toxicity, which yep. would be bad. So monitoring copper levels would be particularly important. And I've also heard that people will actually start to see 
their lunulas of their nail turn blue if they're mm. taking too much of this. Now, yeah. I haven't had any patients in copper toxicity that have noticed this. but I've heard that as well. Maybe that's because we use more reasonable dosages. I have had a patient that was copper deficient, um, secondary to absorption issues from gastrointestinal surgery, um, pretty severely copper deficient and went from a copper level of, normal by the way, is from about 80 to 160, went from a copper level of eight to a copper level of about 35. And we had a very aggressive injectable dosing regimen of GHK copper peptide. And we really couldn't push it uh, past 35 or so with just GHK copper, but it is a relatively large molecule and copper's only a small part of it. So in cases like that, if it's a true copper deficiency, it's important to supplement with other forms of copper. It'll be interesting to know for that patient and others, what the copper levels in the cell, like what's happening in the cell versus yep. in the serum. Somebody is very copper depleted, longstanding deficiency. Mm -hmm. The cells are probably going to be soaking that up because yep. they're essentially starved for copper at that point. Yeah, it's a good point. So I think that's a pretty good overview. This is our, you know, part one of peptide mm -hmm. therapy. Now we've certainly just scratched the surface of all the possible peptides that are out there. Um, it may not be particularly exciting for us to go down and tell you that, nope, there's no human research in this peptide, no human research in this peptide, but there are a lot of humans doing research in themselves with peptides. So we advise anyone doing this to at least let someone, ideally a medical provider, know that you are doing this so yes. that they can monitor your health appropriately. Um, and let us know if you have questions or peptide suggestions that you would like to hear us talk about. Like I said, this will probably be a part one of a mini part series because there are many peptides out there. Yeah, um, I think that's a good segue into saying we hope that this gives you the tools to develop a balanced approach to health. Health. We do like um, taking into account the goals of the patient because patients who are interested in peptides often do want to optimize the health. So that is a very, uh, that's a great goal, but just keeping in mind both the benefits and the risks. Again, a balanced approach, not load everyone up with as many peptides as possible, not there's no clinical data behind any peptides whatsoever and there's no use for them and they should never be utilized. We hope that it gives you a balanced approach. So on that note, as always, uh, thank you for your time and we hope that you have good healthiness and happiness. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.